Well, good morning. Good afternoon, should I say. I keep saying good morning for so, so many times I come up here. I, I keep reminding myself we do service at like 11.45. By the time I come up here after worship, it's already noon. Uh, I should start saying good afternoon. So good afternoon. Everyone doing good? All right. Good to see everyone here. I'm excited to be back. Um, excited to be just among you guys. Uh, we have a lot to cover today. I got about 21 pages of notes. That is almost a record for me. Notice I didn't say it was a record. It was almost a record for me. So let's go ahead and get started. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, if you would, please. Mark chapter 9. We have been going through the book of Mark since January 2014 and uh, going verse by verse through the book of Mark. And it has been an amazing journey so far. Wouldn't, wouldn't you guys say so? I mean, every time we open up the gospel of Mark and we go through it verse by verse, we, we learn new things and we, we come across scriptures that, that are just different to us that we might naturally just skip over or we might see things in this time that we didn't see last time or the first time we read it. And so the gospel of Mark is where we are at chapter 9 today. Uh, we're going to be starting in verse 9. Um, and the thing that we're kind of talking about here is we are finishing up something that I had never preached on in my, you know, eight plus years of ministry. I had never preached on the transfiguration ever, ever between youth ministry and college ministry and family life ministry. I had never preached on the transfiguration. So going verse by verse to the gospel of Mark has forced me to learn something new and study something new and really reaffirm what I already thought I knew about it. And it's been amazing. So I'm just happy to be able to bring this to you guys and kind of wrap it up this week. Last week, we talked about the start of it and what it meant. And we started studying the transfiguration. That was exactly uh, the time when Jesus took three guys, three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. And he invites them up to this mountain and he kind of brings them up to the top of the mountain. And while he is on top of the mountain, everyone's praying. Everyone's having you know, their, their time alone with God. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is transfigured in front of them. Do we learn that the word transfigured is the word metamorpho, which is also where we get the word metamorphosis here in the English language. And so this, this metamorphosis happened, this, this transition where Jesus turned into something other than what he was when he went up to the top of the mountain. And he did this in front of everyone there. Scripture says that his clothes turned bright white. As white as, as snow, the, the, the cleanest white that you could ever imagine. They said that no chemical, no, no bleach, no nothing on earth could even match the pureness and the whiteness of Jesus. And we learned that his face was shining the light of God coming out of him. Not like when Moses went up into the mountain and he met God on the Mount Sinai. He received the Ten Commandments. The Bible says there that when Moses was on top of that mountain, that he begged God, God, let me see your glory. God, just please let me see your face. Let me see your glory, Lord. And God said, no, if you do that, you're going to die. And so what I'll do for you is I'm going to hide you in the cleft of this rock, and I'm going to walk past you, and I'm going to shield your face, which is pretty awesome if you ask me. And you're going to shield your face with my hand. And as I walk by, I'm going to let you catch a glimpse of my back. And when Moses saw the glimpse of God's back, he simply just started glowing with the reflection of God's glory. So much so when he came down with the Ten Commandments, all the villagers and everyone that he was, all, the, all his people looked at him and said, yo, Moses, dude, your face is so bright. Put a veil on. It's that bright. You're keeping us up all night long. You know, he was that bright. But the difference between Moses and Jesus was while they were both very bright in their faces. Moses was reflecting the light. 
And Jesus was producing the light. Much like the moon reflects the light of the sun, the moon does not project light. It doesn't produce light, but the sun produces light. And so Jesus was producing light. He was emanating the light of God coming from his face. It was a pretty awesome time. And we learned that because of those things, because of all that moment right there, we learned two things. One, it showed us a glimpse of what was to come. A movie trailer we said that it was kind of like that God was, Jesus was showing the disciples what was about to happen, a taste of what was going to be in heaven because he had his heavenly clothes on and he had the light of God portraying from his face and he was showing the disciples what it was going to be like in the kingdom of God. The other thing we learned is that it showed that Jesus was God. Because up until this point, he had talked about so many things. He had claimed he was God. He says, I am. He says, I am God. And he also had claimed to be the Messiah as well. But he had never shown them, you know, that he was the Messiah. He had done many miracles and all that good stuff. But at this moment, he showed them that he was the Messiah. We knew him as God in human flesh. Now we start to know him as God in godly being. Y'all, y'all trending with this? Y'all tracking with this so far? And then he was transformed in front of Peter, James, and John, and then spirit filled them, and they were all excited. And the spirit of Elijah came down, and the spirit of Moses came down, and Peter was all excited. He's like, hey, guys, let's build a tent for each one of you guys, and it's going to be a tabernacle for each one, and we can go in there, and we can worship, we can be together, and let's, let's do all this. And, and then God shows up on the scene. The voice of God comes over, and just by the voice of God, just by God's presence in that place, the disciples were so excited. And then their excitement went from, from excitement to fear. And when they heard the voice of God, God said, this is my son, listen to him. The disciples freaked out. They fell on their face, uh, on the ground, face first on the ground, and just started just confessing sins, just started pleading with God, just, oh my gosh, this is God in the spirit in front of us. And they were freaking out. And God shows up, and, 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 and the reason they freaking out is because when we come into contact, we learned this last week, when we come into contact with a holy, perfect, and pure God, it shows us our wickedness, our unholiness, and our imperfectness amongst ourselves. And so we have a couple of options at that point. When the Spirit of God comes in, there's two things that happens. When we're face-to-face with the Spirit of God, we can either, one, we can just be so intensely stricken with fear and we start confessing our sins and we are shown our wickedness. This is the call of salvation. You might remember that moment when God came into your life and, and you first started knowing God and you realize your wickedness and how, how messed up you were and how far away from God you were and how the only way you can get to him was through Jesus. And that's the first thing that happened. The second thing that happened was whenever we would come to meet God in the Old Testament, we would just be stricken dead. That he was so holy, so pure, so full of glory that our wickedness couldn't even be around him and we would just drop dead. We learned that. But the disciples didn't die. The disciples didn't die. They were face down and stricken in fear, knowing what was going to happen, knowing what the Old Testament stories of people who just simply saw God or heard God and were struck down. They were so scared. And what did they feel? They didn't feel the wrath of God came upon them. They felt Jesus' hand softly touch their shoulder and say, it's going to be okay. Don't be afraid. And so we learned that, that the only way we can see the glory of God, that we can be within the community of God, that we can be in this, um, you know, this harmony with God, is if we have a mediator, and that mediator is Jesus Christ. He is the only way we can see the glory of God. 
through his blood, we are saved. And that's why we sing the song, There is a fountain full of blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins that all sinners can plunge into the flood and we are cleansed. That is, that is the gospel right there. And we learn that stuff, and it's pretty cool stuff. Well, today we're going to finish up with the last part of the transfiguration. And it takes place as the disciples are, and Jesus are walking down the hill, and they're coming back down the mountain, and they're all hyped up, and everything's going on. And there's a question that we can find the answer to in that moment. And the question is this, is why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? Now, that's a good question, right? Wouldn't you guys say that's a good question? That's probably one of the top three questions asked to pastors around the world. One of them is like, do babies go to heaven? And then there's other ones like, you know, stuff like that. You know, like, is there, you know, what about angels and stuff? But the other ones, why did Jesus have to die? Like, why did he have to die? It's one of those hard questions to answer for us. If God is a good, loving God, if God is a good, loving God, if he is so good and if he is so powerful and he is in such control over everything why did he have his son die on the cross why did he have to go that route I mean, why couldn't he just forgive and forget you know that the fact that we all sin against him why couldn't he just kind of brush it off his shoulder and say i'm good it's okay we're we're, we're cool uh just do better next time why did he have to send Jesus to die and sacrifice his son on the cross where he was murdered in front of thousands of people in front of him who were watching him being crucified where they were drawing nails into his hand where he was suffocating under the weight of his own body for six hours hanging on the cross excruciating pain nails driven through his wrist and his feet to hold him up why did he have to endure that why did he have to endure the flogging and the beating and the, 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 the whipping and all the torture that he had to go through. Why did he have to endure a crown of thorns being crushed into his skull? And, and why did he have to do all of that just so that God can say, everyone is forgiven? Why? Well, the answer to that we'll find here in Mark 9, starting in verse 9. If you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and start reading that. If you don't have your Bibles... Um, there's some at the edge of the chairs. See, I said it right this time. Last week I said tables. At the edges of the, of the rows of the chairs, you can pick one. Ask your neighbor, hey, give me a Bible. Um, if you, you don't have a Bible, that is yours to keep. You can take it home. That's our gift to you. Uh, the other way that you can follow along with us is I'm going to have some of the scriptures on the screen. But also, uh, if you get on Facebook, we're, it's on our page. All the scriptures are on there. You can follow along on there. Just I mean, promise me you're listening and reading the scriptures and not on Facebook checking your status. Because that would be bad. And God knows what you're doing. He sees you. Okay. Uh, Verse 9. It says, As they were coming down the mountain, which always makes you want to start singing that song. Should we come in? Okay. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant and what the rising of the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And we know that's through John the Baptist, because Jesus said that. To restore all things and how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come and that they did to him whatever they please as it is written in him. 
Now, verse 9 starts off this quest to answer the question of why Jesus had to die with posing another question. It's just like an Indiana Jones movie. Where you're going, he's going to go find the Holy Grail. Before he finds the Holy Grail, he has to find the, the, the broken tablet, the other part of the tablet. It's like to answer one question, you have to answer other questions to get around to this question. So verse 9 says this again. Let's read it again. It says, And they were coming down the mountain, and he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now, why would Jesus say that? Tell no one. Why would he say that? Jesus has just been transformed in front of these guys. I mean, everything going on, powerful moment, you know, white clothes, shiny face, glory of God, wind, everything's going on, everything's cool, right? And everything's awesome. They're coming down the mountain. I can just, I can imagine if, if he was protruding the, the glory of God, I wonder if Peter, James, and John were just that excited about that. They were like, oh, Jesus, wow, like, you really are the Messiah. And they're so pumped up. And they're like, we gotta go, we gotta go post it on Facebook somewhere. We gotta go, I gotta tweak this. I gotta go tell people, like, I'm so excited about this. And then God, Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, that thing that just happened up there, that really awesome moment we just shared together, the awesome moment that I only picked you three to do, I don't want you to tell anyone about it. Like, no one. Like, why would he do that? Why would he do that? That's like hearing the best news in the world. The news that can help save millions of people. That you found, you know, a money tree. Or you found some type of cure for like, the, like every disease in the book. And you found like the best news possible and you can't tell no one about it. It is that hard to do. By the way, this isn't the first time Jesus said this. Usually after every miracle he did or every healing he did, he would always charge the people not to tell the other people around them what had just happened. He says, don't tell no one about this. I just healed the blind man. Don't, don't tell no one. I healed the, the lame and the mute. That guy was dying to tell someone because he hadn't been able to talk for years, right? And he's like, I can't speak. And Jesus is like, but don't tell no one. <laughs> like, oh, man, like, you know, like, like what, you know, why would he say that? Why was Jesus always telling people not to tell anyone what just happened? See, the Jewish people of the day, we need to understand the Jewish people of the day to understand why Jesus did this. The Jewish people of the day believed that through the Old Testament prophecies that there was going to be coming a Messiah, that some, there was going to be a Savior that was going to come to Israel and set them free from all these things that were holding them bondage and holding them down. They thought that there was going to be set free from the tyranny and the rule of the Roman Empire that was just taxing them to death and ruling over them. They thought they were going to be set free from other nations that over the years had, had kind of had their hand in the pot with them and kind of taken control over them and enslaved them into for many years. You look at like, you know, like nations like Egypt and Babylon and, and the Assyrians and everyone that has kind of controlled them. They've been oppressed for, for thousands and thousands of years and, and here they're waiting for this Savior to come to just kind of free him from all this stuff and and they were thinking that this savior was going to be this strong powerful 
sort of like military commando, uh, political guy, Walker, Texas Ranger, Chuck Norris dude that was like not going to take no crap from no one and come down to earth, come, you know, you know, kicking butt, taking names later type of guy. And they expect him to be rich. They expect him to be full of glory and gold and, and draped in like these awesome purple robes or showing his kingship around the world. And they thought that he was going to come in and he was going to just kind of save Israel and put them back on the throne as one of the mightiest empires of the world at the time. That's just what they thought, but that's not how Jesus does it now, is it? That's not the way he comes into the world. He doesn't come into the world a warrior king. He doesn't come to, with this you know, political mindset, this agenda to have this amazing campaign to rule over nations and to set Israel free from Roman tyranny. He doesn't do that. He came as a weak baby, a mere human child born in a manger. Born into poverty, born to poor parents, raised to do the skill of his father, which was carpentry. He wasn't rich. Many people think that Jesus was a rich guy. I don't see where they get that in Scripture. And the kids slept in the manger. And so they were, he was raised into the fact that just a few weeks after he was born, his family had to flee to Egypt for a few years because there was a big sweep of murdering the, the firstborn kids because King Herod thought that this Messiah was going to be this ultimate king. So he started killing all the kids. Like, that's not the type of king that I would expect. Like, the king, the Messiah that the Jewish people thought was going to come would be the type of king that doesn't run, that doesn't hide. But Jesus, his dad had to protect him, and then he went into, that's the type of life he was born into. So when Jesus shows his disciples the true glory of God through him and the fact that he really was the Messiah, he knew that if word got out about this, that the Jewish people in the nation and everyone around them would try to make him into that Messiah. They would try to force him into doing something that he wasn't ready to do, or they would force him into doing something that, that he was, it wasn't his plan. See, Jesus didn't come to free Israel from the reign and, and, and slavery of Rome and, and, and the tyranny and the, the, just the anguish of Rome. He came to, sla- to save Israel and the world, really, from the slavery of sin and the tyranny and the pain of, of being in bondage to sin. It was a different campaign. It was a different approach. It was a different way of doing things. And the crazy thing is that many Jewish people today still believe that Jesus is not the Messiah. And if you ask them, why, why do you not believe he's the Messiah? It's pretty clear in Scripture that he is the Messiah. And they'll say, because he failed us. Because he failed. He didn't, he didn't conquer with this great conquest. He failed us. And so Jesus knew that he asked his disciples not to tell anyone because he knew that if they would tell people, then there, there might be some stirring of trouble in this great plan for him to save the world. Because it was not the way that he knew it needed to be revealed to the world. See, Jesus had a very clear plan on how he was going to redeem the world. His plan to reach the world and to redeem it was very crystal clear. And if you remember back a few weeks ago in Mark chapter 8, he talked about that. So if you would, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Turn there with me just a few chapters back. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Uh, Jesus is, is walking with his disciples again, and he looks at them and he asks them a question. He says, who do people say that I am? 
Like, who does the world say that I am? And his disciples were like, man, some say that you're like John the Baptist. Some say you're either John the Baptist. Some people say you're Elijah. And then other people say you're one of the prophets. They, even in the book of Matthew, it says that you might even be Jeremiah. And they say that you're all these people. And Jesus says, that, that, that's okay. That, that's great. But, but who do you say that I am? Who do you, the disciples, who do you who follow me every day, who do you say I am? And Peter raises his hand. You know, we always want to be first in line, Peter. And he says, you, my Lord, are the Christ. And we learn that the word Christ, Christo, means Messiah, anointed one, chosen one. Did y'all remember that? It means that, that he is the Messiah, the chosen one. And so he tells him after that, he says, don't say nothing about this. There he goes again. Don't say nothing about that. And this is why. Let's read Mark chapter 8, verse 30. It says, and he strictly charged them not to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed after three days and rise again. I want you guys to kind of look at that real quick and just kind of keep that scripture up there. I want us to look at this word must, and I highlighted it and underlined it, because I want you to just, it, 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 this word must is so important in this verse. And it's one of those, those times that you really need to appreciate studying your Bible versus just skimming through it and reading it. Because so many times we'll read this and we're like, son of man must suffer many things, blah, blah, blah. But as we're studying the word, as we're diving deeper into the word, we'll realize that the word must is so important in this verse that it might even be one of the most important words in the Bible. Because the word must is put there to kind of set up and and really make everything else that comes after that word must impossible not to do. It means that the word must, it it, it sets up the tone for everything. It modifies and controls the rest of the scripture. It implies that all things that Jesus lists out are now necessary to do. They're not optional. They're not something that, that might happen or might, or might go on. It, they must go on. In other words, Jesus must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be risen again. Notice it didn't say that he would be suffering or that he would. It was a, he said they must. It's a big difference between the word must and would or must and might or must and gonna be. It is a must have. It has to happen is a necessity, which brings us to the next question, which was the original. Why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to die? If he must die, if it has to happen, if that is why he is coming, that is why his, that's the, how his plan is being worked out, why must he die? Why does Jesus have to die? The answer is simple. It's because there is a cost for our sins. There was a cost for our sins. Jesus had to die because there was a cost that was occurred whenever we first sinned against God. Let me put it to you like this. I know you guys are going to relate to this. Let's say you're at your house and you have a party and one of your friends drinks too much. Maybe, maybe you know that guy in your family. It's your deal. It's, your, you know, it's that one friend that's always just hitting the bottle too hard, Right? Maybe that's you. I don't know. I'm just saying. Maybe you're the, you're the crazy one. And, and, and like, you're the, you're, the, you're the life of the party, right? And so you're at your house, and your friend's over, and, you know, he starts getting all wild. And before you know it, 
he had just bought a $500 nice LED Samsung TV, and he's stumbling around, and he trips over, and he knocks the TV off the TV stand, and it falls over, and it cracks the screen, and just messed up. He breaks your $500 TV. He has wronged you. He has sinned against you, which means he has wronged you. He has done something. And in that moment that he has wronged you, while he breaks the TV, the cost of the TV, a, a cost is occurred. Someone has to pay for that TV now, right? I mean, God, it's your $500 TV. Of course someone's going to have to pay for this. And there's a couple of things. Once the debt is occurred, one of two things can happen. You can make him pay for the TV. You can say, you know what, dude, you're going to pay for the TV. He's like, I ain't going to pay for nothing. You know, like, you know, and you're like, no, I'm going to take, when you sober up, I'm going to take you to court. And they're going to prove that you were messed up in my house. And they're going to prove that you're guilty of this sin against me. And you will have to pay $500. You could do that. You can make him pay for it. You can make him pay the cost of that TV. Or you can say, you know what, bro, I forgive you. I know you got a little tipsy. You really turned up that moment, you know. I can, I, I, I get that, and I forgive you. You can do that. But what happens to the cost of that TV? It still has to be paid, right? You absorb that cost because it goes back to when you first bought the TV, and you paid five hundred bucks for it. Now it's broken. You absorb that cost, and that's exactly what the Bible does. When we sin against God, I mean, y'all know who we sin against. Who does the Bible say we sin against? God. Thank you. Thank you for those who Googled that quickly. God. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned against God. We have all broken God's TV in such a way. And God has a very expensive TV. Okay? It says, all has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this whole thing got started back in the, in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. And their sin just kind of, uh, you know, infected everyone from that point on. And there was a, a sin, there was a debt that was established that must be paid from every single one of us because of the initial sin. And the sin that we do whenever we sin our very first sin. We, we're sinful from the birth. So whenever we start sinning, there is a debt that has occurred between us and God. Now, what does the Bible say the cost of sin is? Does anyone know what the Bible says the cost of sin is? Death. Yeah, you guys knew that one quickly. For the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. Amen. For the wages of sin is death. So the moment you sinned, the moment you wronged God, a debt was occurred, and that payment for that debt is not $500. It's death. We are owed to God death. Wow, that should just like blow you away right there. The fact that we owe God death because we are sinful against him, which brings us to another question. See, see how you got to answer questions to get to this question? Why was it so severe? Why was the cost of, of sinning against God, the payment, so severe to the point of death? Why was it that bad? Death. I mean, that's a big, that death, that, that's like nothing after that. Death. Why was it so severe? The payment for sin is always equivalent to the authority, the power of the person that was wronged. Let me say that again. The payment for sin is always equivalent to the authority or power of the person who was wronged. I want to illustrate it kind of like this, and, and, and then we'll, we'll fix it and wrap it up. But I, I've heard this illustration before. 
a bunch of times, and I think it just kind of really speaks to it. But let's just take this. Um, all of us have lied at some point. How many of you guys have lied? Raise up your hand. Okay, those of you who have not raised up your hand, I'm going to take it that you're lying now. So next time I ask you how many of us have lied, you have to raise up your hand. So let me ask you again, how many of us have lied? We've all lied. If you haven't lied, you're probably lying to yourself right now. Because even if you've been a Christian 20 years, at year one or two, when you first started talking, you told your mom that your diaper was not dirty, and it was. So you lied, okay? So, so you've, we've all lied. And the Ten Commandments say this, thou shalt not you know, bear false witness. Basically, don't lie, right? Don't lie. God says don't lie. So let's pretend that this lie, let's just take this one sin, and we're going to use it for this. Let's pretend that you lie to your friend. Let's say that you lied to your friend. You've wronged your friend, right? You're like, I didn't break your TV. Wouldn't me. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't me. I don't know, right? And you wrong against your friend. What are the consequences of you lying against your friend? How oh, you broken trust. You know, you've broken some trust. Maybe they don't want to be your friend anymore. If you're a guy, maybe he'll punch you in the face. I mean, like, like what are the consequences of you lying to your friends? Those are the consequences because when you lie to your friend, the authority of your friend is not very powerful. He's not, like, he's not your boss. He's not your ruler. He's just your friend. So the consequences aren't that bad. You know, I can, I can live with this, without this person in my life. He lied to me. I don't need him in my life anymore. It's okay. I can deal with that. But let's take it up a notch. Let's raise the authority. And let's keep the same sin, but let's raise the authority. Let's say you lie to your boss at work. How many of us have lied? No. Okay. <laughs> um, you lie to your boss at work. Hey, bro, I'm sick. <coughs> and then you go to the beach. You know, like, like you lie to your boss at work and your boss finds out. What are the consequences of lying to our boss at work? The authority is higher. But one, you might get paid time off or no time off without pay. They might say, go home, you know, for a week without pay, come back. They might uh, reprimand you somehow by demoting you down a step. Like, you know what, dude, you were, you know, on this level. Now you're going to go back down to the starting level and we got to work your way back up again. Or because you lie, you might face ultimate, you know, authority, you know, know, discipline and be terminated from the job. Hey, you're out of here, dude. Don't lie to me. I can't trust you. You see how the same sin with a different higher authority equivalates a more severe punishment. Does that make sense? Y'all tracking with me on that? And so let's take it up another notch. Let's say you lied to the U.S. government. How many of us have lied to the U.S.? No. Okay. Let's say you lie to the U.S. government. You commit treason. Now many of us rely on our taxes and that is wrong. You need to repent of that. You need to do things right. Okay, so you, you lie to the government, and, and let's just say you commit treason. You're like, no, I did, not, I did not cross those people over the border or whatever. Like, I did, not, I did not do that, you know? Many of us are like, what's wrong with that? It's my uncle. And so you, 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 you commit treason, or maybe you spy, you go whatever. What is the consequences of lying to the authority of the USA, the United States of America? What is the equivalent to that authority? Man, you can be held in jail for, for your whole life. It's not just like some mediocre, I broke my friend's TV, or I got a rowdy at the bar, or whatever. Like, no, you lied to the United States of America, treason and whatever, and you're in jail for the rest of your life. You're like in Guantanamo Bay or something, man. You're like in like heavy lockdown. 
Or maybe you lied to the U.S. or maybe you committed a crime against the U.S. And because of that crime, you now face the death penalty. That's, that's been there. Traitors of the U.S. are always open to the death penalty. I don't know if you guys knew that. I think that's still in, in effect. So you see how the authority of the person we sin against equivalates a higher form of discipline. A higher debt to be paid because it's more severe. It's a higher authority. The consequences are always bigger when the authority is bigger. Now let's up the authority one more time with the same sin, lying. But this time the authority is God. And God says, do not lie. But all of us have lied, right? And the authority and power of God is not just bigger than your boss or your friend. It's not bigger than the U.S. government. U.S. government is a drop in the water compared to the authority and power of God. When you lie to the authority and power of an infinite, powerful God, the consequences are infinitely bad at that point. Not just death, but eternal death. Eternal separation from God for that sin. Y'all get this, right? That when we sin against God, the reason why the debt is so high is because he is that powerful. He is that mighty. He is an all-powerful, almighty, just God. And when we sin against that infinite power, an infinite debt is is, is owed to that, to pay for that. And so God now has a choice to deal with us with our debt. He could have made us pay the debt for our sin. He could have said, you sinned against me. All sin is equal. Now you lied. Now you murdered. Now you raped. Whatever you did. And now the payment for that sin against me, because you've broken my commandment. You've broken my law. You've broken my way. Your sin, your payment is death. Gone. Payment. Paid in full. Boom. He could have done that. Or he could have done the other way. Where he says, you know what? You're forgiven. But what happened to that debt? That debt still had to be paid by somehow. And that's why he sent Jesus to die in our place. See what I'm saying? He had to die. Why did Jesus have to die? Because we sinned against God. Jesus is around the table fixing to die in his last supper. He's having it with his disciples. And he took the bread and he broke it in half. And, and um, he's talking to his disciples at this point. And he told them, that, you know, over the Passover, that this is my bread and this is my body. Remember it when I die. And he told them that the bread was his body. He broke it for them. And, and, and so they could remember him when he died. And they start freaking out, and he takes a cup, and he says, this is my blood. And he takes the cup, and he says, when you know, drink of this, and when you drink of this cup of the blood, remember, this is my, my blood that was poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins, because I have to die for you. Then he went up to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was there praying, and he was just in such anguish and in prayer because he knew that he had to die. He knew. In fact, the Bible says that he was praying so hard in the garden that blood started dripping from his face because he was in such stress because he knew that for a moment in the future, in the near future, he was going to be eternally separated from God because he was going to become this sin that he needed to pay, uh, crucify, to destroy. 
And so the Bible says that he became sin who had no sin. And so he literally became, he took upon every lie that we had ever said, every impure thought that we had ever done, every war, every murder, every impure, lustful thought and act in, in whatever you do, every rape, every addiction that you deal with, everything that our sinful bodies crave and desire, he took upon himself, he became, and then he was shattered upon that cross. And the Lord took him and he destroyed that sin on that cross for us. He had to die for us. If not, there was going to be wrath upon us. He took that wrath upon himself. And he knew all of that going into this. He knew what the game was going to end like. He knew what the score was going to be. He knew what was going to happen. And he knew the anguish and the pain he was going to have to suffer. And in that moment when he was praying in the garden, he said, God, if there is any other way, please make it happen. Please make this happen. The guy looked at him and he said, there is no other way. You have to die. You have to die because all of us are sinful. And because all of us are sinful, Jesus had to die so that we could be connected to him, the Father, again. Because he is the only mediator between us and God. It's Jesus Christ. So they led him up upon that cross, and for six long hours, he was hung there on the cross, just bleeding, and like I said, under the weight of his own body, suffocating on himself, and just excruciating pain. The pain was so hard that when in order for him to take a breath, he had to push up on the nails that were holding him up, just so he could take one breath, and then just the the pain was so intense that he had to release his muscles and he started suffocating again. And he endured this over and over and over again for six long hours until finally he said, it is finished. And he gave his spirit up to God and it was over at that moment. And in that moment, not when he went to hell, but when he died on the cross at Calvary, sin was just completely destroyed and it was over. It is finished. And upon the cross, we have salvation because he died for us. Amen. If that doesn't pump you up, I don't know what will. So why did Jesus have to die? Because for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That is the gospel. That is the good news, that Christ came and died for every single one of us here. That Christ came and died for everyone outside here. That Christ came and died for everyone across the world. That we all have that option to to choose to follow Christ, to choose to believe in Christ. That is the gospel of the Bible. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you understand that, when you get the fact that Christ has died for you, you who don't deserve life at the point of your sinful act, when you understand the fact that he has died for you in your place, that should cause you to do amazing things. Your wickedness should just leave your body at that moment. You should just say that I am stronger than that sin. I am better than that sin because Jesus Christ has paid my debt. I no longer have to be enslaved to that sin. That I am more than the conqueror in all of these things through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus intervened and he paid our price. He gave us the greatest gift of all. 
And that is something that we can celebrate. We're going to pray, and we're going to watch a video, and we're going to reflect and remember what Christ has done for us. On this video, I want you to just stay in your seats. And whatever you need to do, whatever position you need to get into to worship, do that. But during that time, me and David are going to be up front. And if you need to pray, if you need to break down, if you need to just confess, if you need to do something at this moment, don't walk out that door with the regret of not doing what you know God is moving you to do right now. Let's all pray and let's worship. Let's pray this video. God, thank you so much for your son. God, thank you for the love that you have given us, the grace. God, we love you. God, we praise you. We just come to you today. God, may we never forget what you've done for us. Lord, you are everything. You are everything to us. Amen.